Welcome to the fourth episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. My name is Nila Mehmood and I am an associate editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, Senior Public Relations Editor Lillian Gabreski interviews Adam Semensky, Chair for Energy and Geopolitics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, about energy policy and its impact on geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy. Mr. Siminski, it's a pleasure to have a SIPA alum with us today, and I would like to welcome you back to Cornell, and thank you for taking the time out to speak with the Cornell Policy Review. I guess by starting off, could you tell us a little bit about your role as Chair of Energy and Geopolitics at uh, CSIS, and how CSIS contributes to kind of the larger scale policy making in the U.S.? Right. Well, CSIS, so the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is a nonpartisan, nonprofit policy research organization. Uh, we have about 300 people in Washington and all kinds of different programs. One of the biggest programs is global health. Uh, there are also big programs on kind of Asian studies, defense initiatives, and energy. Uh, I've known people at CSIS over my entire career in Washington. Always thought it was a great place to just have what I call reasoned discussions of energy policy issues, you know, like what are the pros and cons of doing things, um, hydraulic fracturing or fracking for oil and gas wells, you know, like what are the, what are the benefits and, and costs or what are the challenges associated with doing that. And you can discuss those kinds of things at CSIS and I think it offers policymakers a really interesting and in some ways unique opportunity to uh, share and learn in an environment where you're not being yelled at <laughs> <laughs> by people from either side. Yeah. <laughs> right, and so what CSIS is really good at is, is what they call convening power. They have a reputation that allows them to bring people together to to talk about issues and uh, to try to learn what are the best ways to go forward with with policies. And uh, I sort of feel like that, that looking back on my career that I was destined for this in some way <laughs> or another. You know, as a Wall Street analyst, uh, you know, the, they say anyways, right, we don't really care whether stocks go up or down, we just want to be able to tell clients which way they're going. <laughs> and at the Energy Information Administration, which I headed for four years, they too are nonpartisan. Uh, it's a statistical agency, and so the idea is to do policy analysis using statistics that are unbiased and, uh, and factual, and I think CSIS is a bit like that. So my job there in, is to uh, look at energy uh, issues and geopolitics, understanding the challenges and motivations of countries like the United States or Russia or Japan, China, countries in the European Union, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East to come up with views on things that uh, maximize the positive benefits for society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the... Yeah, that's so that's fascinating. That's so maybe let's start uh, by talking about next. During your five years in the Energy Information Administration, 
What were the most significant trends or shifts in the energy market, especially with regards to clean energy? Um, so how did these shifts impact the national mood or the domestic energy industry? So there were three or four big things that happened while I was uh, there uh, at EIA. Uh, one of them regarding uh, clean energy was the huge cost reductions that we saw in renewable energy, wind, solar, the, the declining cost for solar panels, declining cost for batteries, declining cost for wind blades and turbines uh, that have made uh, renewable energy, especially wind, uh, much more cost competitive uh, than uh, they had been. And as a consequence of that trend, EIA's own forecasts for the uh, ability of renewables to play a more significant role in the energy outlook for the United States. At uh, EIA, we had had to adjust our long-term forecasting models for renewables and clean energy based on uh, improvements in cost reductions. One of the other areas that was actually I think in some ways disappointing from a clean energy standpoint was the lack of what people were calling the renaissance of nuclear power. <laughs> nuclear has just continued to be very expensive. The ability of utilities to construct nuclear power plants in a timely and affordable uh, manner has not improved a great deal and as a consequence uh, we're just not seeing nuclear power growing very much. And that's, from my standpoint, really unfortunate from a climate view because uh, it's one of the best ways of getting carbon-free energy for electricity. Uh, and so we're not seeing that. You know, maybe at some point we'll have a breakthrough, um, small modular reactors or better other kinds of fuel cycles in nuclear, maybe even fusion. There's a big program underway that Russia... Japan, United States, uh, China, and others are working on to a thing called the Tokamak Project. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's decades away from really having results that would matter. One of the other things, uh, and I'll end on this one, uh, because I think it is in, in many ways a clean form of energy, is shale and shale, uh, natural gas from shale. Uh, one of the ways that greenhouse gas emissions were reduced in the United States over the last 10 years was by using more natural gas and less coal to generate electricity. And that would not have been possible without um, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Um, I've worked for, as EIA administrator, two energy secretaries, Stephen Chu and Ernie Moniz, both of whom convened, convened big panels of environmentalists, company people, academics, you know, experts in uh, geology and, and other pertinent topics to look at hydraulic fracturing. And their conclusion was, yes, of course, there are problems, but those problems are manageable. And the results that we're getting from being able to use natural gas uh, in a safe uh, manner uh, in improving the environment and improving, uh, lowering greenhouse gas emissions uh, to me outweigh the, the costs and the risks. And so the U.S. Uh, over the past seven years has gone from from a pro the prospects of increasing oil imports, increasing natural gas imports to being uh, an exporter uh, on a net basis of natural gas and moving in that direction on oil, which to me is really remarkable. And, and uh, 
at least in the short run, I see that as actually a, a clean energy win rather than a clean energy loss. It's not renewables, uh, but it's improving things. And and in my math, that uh, that's a positive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting and an honest conversation that maybe a lot of people in, in government don't want to have these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's... it's uh, uh, Renewables have uh, a great deal of sort of support from just the standpoint of, of it just looks so much better the idea of using, you know, solar power, for example. Uh, it almost seems like it's free. Um, it's not really because there are, you know, every form of energy has challenges. Um, there are, uh, you know, wind towers that, that, People think have visual pollution problems. Uh, they make noises, so the sound. If you're if you live near a wind turbine, uh, and there are um, problems associated with uh, birds and mm -hmm. bats, actually, that uh, where the where they um, are killed by the right. rotating blades. Um, but again, if you if you say, well, let's look at the cost and benefits associated with that. I would say that the, the benefits are greater than the costs, and even though uh, it's not a perfect form of energy, it's better than a lot of the other ones that we have, so we need to move forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so how would you say that major shifts um, like this trend towards renewable energy affect U.S. relations with some of the largest players, uh, suppliers, and markets in the global energy sector? particularly oil and gas uh, markets such as China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia? Right. Well, China is, is one of the biggest oil importers now. Russia is, and Saudi Arabia are huge oil exporters. So if you're Russia and Saudi Arabia, you're very concerned about the possibility that electric vehicles might eliminate the market for gasoline and diesel engines, uh, which would dramatically impact the demand for oil. China is kind of a, a, an interesting thing. China has been very active uh, in manufacturing wind blades, wind turbines, uh, and solar panels, uh, solar cells. So uh, there's a lawsuit right now or a government case that uh, the Chinese are being accused of subsidizing the exports of solar panels and uh, some consideration is being given to putting an import tariff on solar panels that would actually create big problems for people who are trying to install solar panels on roofs in the United States. So there are all kinds of interesting geopolitical uh, interactions that that are taking place in this area. Um, you know, some from people that are afraid of losing market share to renewables and others who are concerned that countries like China might be taking unfair advantage of their manufacturing capabilities. That is probably going to be repeated in some way. Uh, China has indicated that they're going to be very active in building electric vehicles and batteries associated with electric vehicles. And uh, if China can end up uh, being as dominant a manufacturer of batteries as they have been doing in the wind and solar areas, uh, it's gonna be a challenge to other manufacturers around the world. Wow. <laughs> um, so, there have been quick increases followed by decreases in shale gas production within the U.S. 
Does shale gas have the potential to contribute to much of global energy production in the foreseeable future? And how do the perceptions about shale gas impact the volatility inherent to the oil and gas industry? Uh, and maybe just as another follow-up question, what are the policy actions in place, if any, to protect the domestic market from these uh, volatilities? Right. Um, so let's start off with <laughs> a little bit about the, the increases and potential decreases. So shale, production of oil or natural gas from shale uh, is kind of like a manufacturing process. So if you stop drilling and you stop fracking, then production is going to decline fairly quickly. Um, that so far uh, has not been a particularly huge problem for either oil or gas, although production, and certainly for oil and a little bit for natural gas, did drop when oil prices came down at the end of 2014 from $100 a barrel to $50 a barrel. And we had an equivalent drop in natural gas prices that fell from, you know, $4 down to $2. So that halted uh, a lot of the drilling activity for both oil and natural gas and, uh, and caused production to dip. Uh, but production is now recovered and a lot of the forecasts uh, from virtually everybody that does forecasting for oil and natural gas production, uh, the potential for gas in the United States is huge. Pennsylvania uh, is now one of the largest natural gas producing states in the country. Uh, the Marcellus field that underlies Pennsylvania and parts of Ohio and West Virginia uh, is hugely productive. And the potential for that to grow over time is uh, really uh, quite strong. Uh, on the natural gas side, uh, there's still a debate, or excuse me, on the oil side, there's still a debate going on about uh, whether or not we will eventually run out of the asset, you know, geologic base. Uh, there's still a kind of a healthy debate about the geologic prospects for shale oil. The Bakken formation in North Dakota uh, seems to have peaked out. The Eagle Ford formation in Texas uh, may have plateaued as well. Uh, but there's something called the Permian Basin in Texas that looked really, really strong from a geologic perspective that could allow oil production in the United States to keep climbing. So uh, I think that the, this has dramatically changed how um, the United States sees itself in, the, in, the, in geopolitically. Uh, there was a time where every politician worried about import dependency uh, and now uh, the Trump administration has used the word energy dominance they want to you know use energy as a way to um, actually make the US uh, a bigger player on the geopolitical stage for example liquefied natural gas exports going to Europe to compete with Russian natural gas pipeline exports of gas into Europe uh, to I think show how strong the United States uh, could be using energy in, in a geopolitical sense. So we'll we'll have to see. But protecting the domestic markets from volatility is really really hard to do. Oil uh, and natural gas have what economists call very high. I guess I'll put this in economic terms: very low price elasticity. So it, it takes big increases in price to get relatively small increases in production or decreases in demand. And as a result of that, if you have a 
a problem, whether it's a, a hurricane or a, that creates a problem for refining or pipeline activity or a geopolitical problem in a producing country like Venezuela or Iraq or Iran. And the one that everybody seems to worry about all the time is Saudi Arabia because they, you know, or Russia because they export so much of oil and gas. Uh, worrying about um, where alternative supplies can come from is something that has occupied uh, energy policy people for a long time. And shale has made a huge uh, difference to that in the United States. It's reduced the level of anxiety. So maybe you, you started to touch on a point there, maybe we can expand upon it. Um, how significant is the ownership of energy resources in establishing the political power of a nation? Or uh, how significant has it been for the U.S.? Well, for shale, uh, the, it's made a huge difference. Uh, the United States is one of the few countries in the world where the, the resources under the ground are owned by the surface owner, generally speaking. Uh, so a farmer actually owns the natural gas that's under the farm in Pennsylvania. Uh, in France, that's not true. The state owns the, the mm. resources. So if you're in France uh, and you're a farmer uh, and somebody says they want to, you know, the government wants to drill a gas well on your property, you're going to get all of the risk and none mm. of the benefit. Wow. <laughs> In the United States, there's still obviously some risk and, and a, a burden. There's going to be trucks coming in and there's going to be a drilling rig on your property. And, you know, maybe there's going to be a spill. It doesn't happen very often, but it's certainly possible. Uh, but the benefit to you as a farmer is you get a lease payment. So if somebody pays you something right. per acre, maybe $5,000 an acre for the right to drill. And then maybe you get... 12% um, of the revenue, wellhead revenue associated with the production of oil or gas from the property. So it provides a huge financial incentive for the private property owner to, uh, to cooperate. And uh, that has made uh, a huge difference to how quickly uh, the landowners in the United States are willing to cooperate with, uh, with the oil and gas companies to get things done. Uh, you don't see as much of that outside the United States, and it's proved to be uh, a problem. So uh, you get a lot of political opposition when people don't actually feel like they're getting something out of taking the risk, and that's been true in, in places like France uh, and, uh, and even in China, I think, that, that things have been disappointing, although the problems there have been more geological than, mm -hmm. than above-ground risk. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, so, energy accessibility can be a major advantage or disadvantage for different nations. Are there any regions in the world where you believe the geopolitics are particularly shaped by the energy markets in that area? Um, and does the U.S. currently have an active interest in any of these regions? Sure. I mean, I, I, one place to think about is Japan. So it's uh, a uh, country with a, a big population and a strong economy uh, and very lacking in domestic energy resources. You know, there's very little oil or gas production in Japan, you know, tiny little bits here and there. Uh, there's a little bit of coal production, but not a whole lot. Uh, so Japan is dependent on imports of energy with one exception, 
nuclear power, which is kind of a homegrown thing, but then they had the Fukushima accident with the tsunami coming in and damaging one of the, the big electric generating stations. And as a consequence, they shut down all their nuclear power. Uh, so Japan is a perfect example of a country that in one sense has been shaped by its lack of domestic uh, resources. As a consequence, Japan is really interested in things like the affordability of energy. They're interested in new energy technology. Uh, they've done a lot in batteries, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, they were very interested in nuclear power and still are uh, maybe safer ways of generating nuclear power, building nuclear power plants. Uh, very concerned about the geopolitics in the Middle East where a lot of Japanese oil imports come from. Mm -hmm. They've been very interested in, in being a customer of the liquefied natural gas exports from the United States that could go to Japan to diversify their sources of supply. So that's a really interesting case, I think, where a country has, in a sense, been disadvantaged by not having domestic resources. They've been shaped by the geopolitics associated uh, with that. And, you know, does the United States have an interest in that? Uh, yes, we do. I mean, one of the, certainly uh, in terms of partnering with Japan, uh, one of the other areas that the U.S. has been shaped by is our concerns about the volatility in oil production and oil policies in the Middle East, where a lot of the oil comes from. One big question uh, that we're not going to have time to answer <laughs> here, but I'll, I'll bring it up, is if the United States becomes more self-sufficient in oil, if we were to become a net oil exporter, which is possible, uh, would we still have the same interest in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and, and other countries uh, in that region that we have had traditionally because we were concerned about access to oil supplies in those areas? I think the answer is yes, that we have good geopolitical reasons to, be, to continue to be interested in the stability uh, of, of governments uh, and society in the Middle East, uh, even if we are not directly dependent on oil coming from those, those countries, uh, simply because it's a big part of the world and, mm -hmm. and uh, they're important suppliers to other countries like Japan, who are our allies. Uh, but we'll save that for the next time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, bring, that brings us to a really an interesting point I wanted to touch on, which is that the Trump administration keeps referring to energy dominance as one of its policy objectives. That kind of leads to an idea of this move towards energy independence, which you were just kind of touching on. And in your opinion, uh, and maybe you already answered this, but is energy independence a desirable policy direction? There are certain advantages associated with producing your own um, resources. You know, I think that if I had been asked to come up with a word, I would have said, how about um, energy preeminence? Mm -hmm. uh, being, a, being preeminent at something sounds to me like uh, a, uh, a better uh, thing <laughs> than, than dominance. Dominance uh, might be good for, the, for somebody, but who wants to be dominated? Uh, preeminence implies expertise, and I, and I kind of like that, or just being the best at, at what you do. And so why couldn't we be the best at producing oil and gas in a you know, safe and environmentally you know, positive way? Can't we be the, 
the preeminent country for renewable energy. Uh, you know, could we find a better way to, to do nuclear power, which is carbon free? The dominance, I think, kind of implies um, telling somebody what they should do, whether it's good for them or not. Uh, I, I think that, that to a certain extent, uh, there are, you know, some ideas within the, the concept of energy dominance that might make some sense is uh, providing alternate supplies to people who are dependent on somebody else, um, like Russian pipeline gas into Europe. And, you know, could U.S. natural gas exports provide an alternative to um, a country that, that has shown itself to not be a particularly good neighbor, uh, in, you know, in Europe uh, is something that's worth considering. Um, what does all of that mean for the U.S.? Should we be energy independent? Um, I, I don't think energy independence is necessarily a, a goal that has to be pushed at the cost of everything else. There's a concept in economics called comparative advantage. You don't, you know, you can actually, you, everybody can be better off uh, even if you're, you're doing something uh, that might be the second best thing for you um, because somebody else can do it maybe even better than you can and that's the comparative advantage idea. So I don't think that that uh, energy independence is necessarily the ultimate goal, I think. Um, having a diversified supplies and demand, uh, encouraging uh, innovation and new technology and things like renewables is a good idea. But doing that at the expense of, of affordability and environmental, uh, good environmental policies is not something that I think necessarily uh, gets you to the, to the right end point. Well, you've given us certainly a lot to think about uh, with, with all of your points you've made today. So I, I just want to thank you so much for taking this time to sit and, and do this interview with the Policy Review, thank, Mr. Siminski. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Lily. I'm yeah. delighted to be here at, at SEPA, the Cornell Institute <laughs> yeah. for Public Affairs. I'm a SEPA graduate. I'm delighted to come back and meet the students and, uh, and encourage all of you to be the best that you can be, and, and I, uh, I hope you have as much fun in your career as I've had in mine. Thank you so much. Sure.